welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello and welcome to this first podcast episode for 2021. Uh, it's still January, so I think I'm still allowed to say Happy New Year to you. I hope that you did have a good break over the, at the end of last year and the start of this year, and I hope you're looking forward to the year ahead. I, I always think it's interesting that uh, every, every new year, people start thinking about what the year ahead holds and perhaps put the past behind them. There's nothing magical about December 31 switching over to January the 1st, but for some reason, when we do another journey around the sun, people do start thinking ahead. And psychologically, it is a chance for us to refresh and reset and look ahead. I did a presentation this morning about productivity and uh, purpose and projects and planning ahead. And at the start of the presentation, I asked people to share how, how they feel about the year ahead. And some people are optimistic, so the word that I chose was optimistic, and a few people said optimistic, some said excited, ready for the year ahead, some said hopeful, some said energetic. Uh, and one person who said uh, already worn out, um, somebody else said much better days ahead, uh, somebody else said challenging but optimistic. So there's a range of emotions and feeling and expectation. And 2020, of course, was a very challenging year for many people. And I want to talk today about your role as a leader, especially a people leader, as we're moving ahead in 2021. Uh, it's been a really challenging year for many employees and for employers as well. And of course, different industries were affected differently by it. But because it was a global pandemic, uh, everybody has been affected by it in some way or another. Now, as a leader, you have to look at things from both uh, the, the heart and the head. So the heart is how you think about your people and the, your emotional intelligence, and your head is looking at the pragmatic, um, business-oriented goal focus, and you've got to kind of manage those two things together. If you're managing a team, then you've got to make sure that you've got, you've got to achieve some business goals, but you've also got to look after your people. And today, I want to look at the people side. I want to look at one aspect of emotional intelligence, which is all about empathy. It's one of the most important things that you can do as a leader in 2021 to bring your team along this journey through uncertainty and change is to be more empathetic. So let's look at that today. Just to let you know, I'm in the process of writing my next book, which is called Disrupted, and it's about managing and leading through crisis recovery and growth. And what I'm going to talk about today is from one chapter of the book, which is looking at emotional intelligence and empathy in particular, and what that means for you as a leader. So I hope you get some value from this. I'm going to talk about high-level strategy, but also give you some really practical things that you can do to lead your people uh, with emotional intelligence and with empathy. When faced with a crisis, different people act differently. At one extreme, there are few people who thrive in crisis. They jump in, they take the lead, and everything they do is acting decisively to help themselves and other people around them. At the other extreme, there are the people who find it really difficult to cope and they fall apart. Generally a minority, but for them, a crisis can be really difficult because they, they always feel stressed and anxious. Uh, every tiny setback gets magnified and it seems like a disaster. And even the most basic activities, they struggle with managing them. Now, most people fall somewhere between these extremes so that they function, but generally at a lower level than they normally would. They, they, they tend to retreat into themselves and are reluctant to change or, or look outwards. Uh, and so they will recover, but it'll take some time. 
and getting up is harder than falling down and people do need time and space to adjust to their situation before they can adapt to it and start the recovery. Now, 50 years ago, there was a psychiatrist you may have heard of, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and she created this five-stage model for the way that people typically process grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. You might have come across it, and it's a, it's a model that's still widely used. Some people have even described the response to the pandemic as grief, because we grieve the loss of our freedom, we grieve the loss of physical contact, our ability to travel, having social interactions that we were used to, and so many other things that we took for granted. Now, as a leader, you're not a psychiatrist, and you shouldn't try to be, but it's useful to recognize that people in your team are processing the crisis differently. And I'm going to suggest a simpler model for the way that they might be going through it. So these three stages. Number one, retreat. So first of all, to protect themselves, they turn inwards. They focus only on what really matters most and they keep out everything else. The second stage is reset because at some point they feel safe enough to start looking outwards again. And the third step is recover, which is they're ready to change. So let's talk about each of these stages and specifically what you can do to empathize with, support and lead each of your team members through these three stages, understanding that each of them is going to go through them at their own pace. So first of all, let's look at retreat. Now you know that for some industries such as hospitality, travel, tourism, live events, this pandemic was their biggest crisis in living memory and it'll take many years, maybe even decades to recover fully. For other industries and other businesses, it had much less impact. For some people, perhaps the biggest impact was that their staff had to work from home temporarily because they couldn't work from offices. But regardless of how it affected your business or your industry, some of your people will still be suffering either directly or indirectly. And in crisis, people naturally turn inwards and find it difficult to think ahead. They're doing everything they can just to keep their head above water. And the future, if they think about it at all, seems bleak. You might think this isn't literally true, but it's true for them. So as their leader or manager, you have to call on all your reserves of compassion, empathy and emotional intelligence to see them through this retreat phase. So one of the things I think we need to think about is this principle of same storm, different boats. See, in the early days of the pandemic, I recall people saying we're all in the same boat, but that's not true. We're all in the same storm, but each of us has our own boat navigating our way through the storm. And the pandemic's been a triple threat. It's created a health crisis, an economic crisis, and a social crisis. And everybody has been affected differently by it. And unless you know somebody's circumstances really well, you really don't know what boat they have at their disposal. So don't judge. Everybody's doing the best they can with the resources they have. Now, this is true at any time, but it's especially true in a crisis. See, what happens is under, let's call them normal circumstances, it's easier to understand people's behavior because we judge it by generally accepted standards. We all have an idea broadly of what's right and wrong, acceptable or unacceptable, appropriate or inappropriate. But when we go through massive change and we don't have those standards to guide us, it's too easy to fall into the trap of judging people by our standards without knowing anything about them. And even people who look very similar on the surface might have very different circumstances behind the scenes. As an example, consider two of your team members who might be around about the same age, the same seniority, 
perhaps with the same income and similar roles at work, who are working from home for the first time during the pandemic. Now, you may not know it, but one might have a large house and fast internet access, no need to supervise school-age children during the day, they can work from their garden on sunny days, they love cooking at home, they exercise and socialize in a park nearby. The other person, again, looks very similar on the surface, but might, they might live in a cramped and crowded house with unreliable internet access, they're supervising homeschooling for their kids, they don't have any outdoor space, they feel stuck at home rather than safe at home, they miss their colleagues at work, and they yearn for lunch breaks uh, with their mates near the office. So don't assume that you understand the challenges that somebody's facing. Be kind, because you don't know the boat that they have to navigate through this storm. The next thing is the fear of the unknown. Um, I recall this study that was done in 2016. A team of researchers ran an experiment to measure the relationship between stress and uncertainty. And so what they did was they designed a computer game and participants in the game were asked to turn over rocks on the screen. And they were given an electric shock, a real mild electrical shock, if there was a snake under a rock that they turned over. And what they did was they could change the game in two ways. So they could increase the danger by placing snakes under more of the rocks or they could increase the uncertainty by shifting the snakes between moves. Now, as you'd expect, the participants were more stressed as the number of snakes increased. But they were even more stressed when they didn't know if a safe rock might have a snake under it next time. They would rather have a dangerous environment with more snakes as long as they could eventually determine where the snakes were. In other words, they were more stressed by uncertain outcomes than by predictable negative outcomes. And it's not surprising because we're hardwired to prefer certainty and most people struggle when faced with any uncertainty, let alone the massive uncertainty of a global pandemic. And this fear of the unknown is so pervasive that some psychologists suggest that it's the fundamental human fear. It's a thing that drives all our anxiety, stress and even neuroticism. And it explains, at least partly, some of the stress and anxiety that people experience in a crisis. Even in challenging times, if we know the challenges we face, we can decide how to tackle them. Even if it's as simple as the two primitive fight or flight choices. But the real problem comes when we can't do either of these things. You can't stand and fight it because you don't know what it is. And you can't flee because you don't know where it is. It's like planning a journey over a mountain. If we can see the path to the summit, we can plan the first half of the journey, the ascent. But if we can't see what's on the other side, it's more difficult and stressful to plan the descent because we don't exactly know what's going to happen on that side of the journey. And so just be aware that some of your team members are suffering from fear of the unknown and that affects every aspect of their performance. Other thing to keep in mind is that it's not just a fear of uncertainty, it's other pressures as well. Now you might be sick of hearing the word unprecedented to describe the pandemic, but it is unprecedented because it happened to everybody at the same time. I've worked with other organizations in different industries that have also gone through massive change and disruption, but it's typically happened only within that industry. But now, Problems that previously only affected a few people suddenly touch everybody and more of your team members are affected and they might even be indirectly under pressure because of circumstances that are affecting not just themselves but family, friends and other people around them. And as a leader, you might not realise just how badly some of your team members are suffering. 
You may know that Deloitte every year publishes a report which they call Global Human Capital Trends and they've just recently published their 2021 version of their report and they found that employees ranked, they were asked to rank what was really important in their workplace and they ranked very high worker well-being. The executives, in other words the leaders and managers, ranked it lower. So there's this mismatch between what employees expected of their leaders and managers and what leaders and managers thought was important. And the thing is that many people do face challenging circumstances at home. It's difficult to concentrate on work when you're worried about your elderly parents, a, a partner who lost their job, a mortgage that you may not be able to meet repayments on, school fees, family you can't visit overseas, maybe even an escalating domestic violence situation. And then add to that the stress and anxiety that the pandemic itself causes, a risk of infection, physical distancing, maybe it's the virus escaping from hotel quarantine, social isolation, face masks, border closures, travel bans, unemployment, maybe a recession. And to make things worse, there's a compounding effect of multiple stresses. It's one thing to face one or two challenges when you do have time to pause and refill your emotional fuel tank, but it's another thing altogether when you're bombarded with many challenges from many directions and you're constantly running on empty. And stress in the workplace is soaring and more employees are at risk of mental health issues. And many employees say that 2020 was the worst year that they've ever experienced in their professional life when it comes to stress, anxiety, and mental health. And as a leader, you might be a project manager, director, a financial controller, a general manager, but suddenly you find yourself thrown into the role of a counselor. Now, of course, you're probably not a trained counsellor, so you should use your HR and EAP resources for those services, but you're still responsible for enabling a functional and then an engaged and empowered culture in your team. So be kinder, be more compassionate and be more empathetic. You'll be a better leader for your team and a better role model for everybody around you. One last thing when you're thinking about people in retreat, and that is the principle of help before hope. You might remember early in the pandemic, a whole bunch of um, celebrities, mainly American celebrities, got together and they sang John Lennon's song, Imagine, and then published it on a video on Instagram. And the idea was it was supposed to lift the spirits of people who were stuck in lockdown, but it had the opposite effect. It was widely panned as being tone deaf, both emotionally and musically as well. It turns out that people going through the biggest crisis of their lives don't appreciate a whole bunch of rich people living in luxurious mansions telling them we're all in this together. Now, you're probably not a Hollywood actor or an Instagram celebrity, but it's worth heeding the warning so you don't make the same mistake. In October last year, in October 2020, a World Economic Forum survey of employees worldwide said 54% of adults, working adults, fear for their jobs in the next 12 months. Now for Australia, the number was slightly lower, but only slightly lower, it was still 48%. But that's still almost half the workforce. So statistically, that means that everybody on your team is either worried about their job or is close to somebody else who's worried about theirs. And the thing is that people in crisis need practical help. They don't want to hear meaningless platitudes or a tone-deaf attitude. It is appropriate to ask them, what can I do to help? But you also have to be prepared to help. For example, if you think about practical things that you can do, you can offer practical help in different areas. 
Number one is time. So know what you can offer and know what you're authorized to offer when it comes to giving people more time with unpaid leave, with paid leave, with carer's leave, with mental health leave. The next thing is flexibility. For some people, flexible working hours can be as good as or even better than extra time off. So what can you do with flexibility even if you can't offer extra time? The other thing is money. If your own organization isn't in crisis, you might be able to offer more money. Uh, you might be able to give people a promotion or overtime pay or give them the opportunity to take on a new role and a more senior role. The next thing is training. So your team members know that they need new skills for the future and they're willing to learn them. That same World Economic Forum survey that I mentioned also said that 70% of Australians are confident that their employer will provide them with the training for the skills that they need for the future. So if you don't provide them, there's a good chance that your people will go somewhere else. And one more thing that you can offer is connection. Some people need time and permission to just talk to other people in the team. So I've only talked about a few things here, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. And of course, you must work with HR and senior management to know the limitations and constraints on what you can offer. But armed with this knowledge, ask people what they need and offer it. So we've looked at things around people who are in retreat. Let's look at the next stage, which is reset. See, at some point, people who have retreated into themselves start turning the corner, and this is a reset point. They aren't necessarily ready to leave the crisis behind, but at least they're willing to take the first tentative steps out of it. So they start going forward instead of just staying still. They, they, they look outward and not just inward. And they start entertaining the idea of a positive future. And as their leader, you can help them make that transition faster, but without rushing them through your own impatience. And again, unless you're a trained counsellor, it's not appropriate for you to directly deal with their mental health issues. You've got HR to help you with that, but you can help them gain a better perspective of the world around them. So let's look at this area of reset. But before you start looking at other people, look after yourself first. You may remember the time when we used to fly. And as part of every in-flight safety announcement, the crew reminded us to put on our own oxygen mask first before helping others. And this phrase has become so familiar that you hear many speakers and uh, trainers talk about this and use this as a metaphor for self-care in other areas as well, not just when you're flying on a plane. So as you're moving your team from retreat to reset and then through to recovery, make sure you manage your own mental health as well. You're the, the CEO, the chief energy officer for your team. And that means that you're responsible for your own energy first. I like to think of this as being powered with three batteries. One for your physical well-being, another for your mental well-being, and the third for your emotional well-being. Now, in a perfect world, you want full charge in all three areas. In an imperfect world, you still want as much charge as possible. So think about your energy levels in these three areas. So first of all, how, how good is your physical well-being battery? Because you know, when this is low, you feel tired. And, and you know how to fix it. The solutions are unsexy and boring, but you know exactly what your doctor would say. Get enough sleep, eat better food, drink less alcohol, and do some exercise. The next one's mental well-being. How, how well-charged is that battery? Because when that's low, you feel drained. And again, some of the fixes are simple. You can watch funny videos, you can switch off work at the end of the day, you can uh, learn something new, practice mindfulness, 
has stopped doom scrolling. Do you know what doom scrolling is? You can probably guess. It's like going on your phone and scrolling through all the bad news. And there's plenty of it. So replace doom scrolling with joy scrolling. In other words, find good news stories, especially towards the end of the day when you're just about to go to sleep. And the third area is your emotional well-being battery. And when this is low, you feel flat. So what can you do? Spend quality time with your loved ones. Spend quality time with yourself. Don't take responsibility for everybody else. And also create positive daily habits. So this is just a small example of the things that you can do. I recommend that if you want to know more about this, check out my friend and colleague, Dr. Jenny Brockis, B-R-O-C-K-I-S, and uh, have a look at what she's doing with her blogs, with her podcasts, her webinars, and her books, which are fantastic for helping you with your well-being and looking after your future brain. Now, also beware of micro-stresses in your day, and these affect all three areas. And micro-stresses are those the small irritations and frustrations. They seem minor, but they occur so frequently that they add up, and then they create significant stress and anxiety. So what are some examples? Um, unreliable colleagues, confrontational conversations, meetings, constant meetings that waste time, useless reports that you have to read or maybe even have to create, a menial tasks that you do, a lack of alignment between your work and your values, or an unpredictable boss. And also, finally, enlist other people in your self-care regime. It could be your partner, your family, a good friend, trusted colleagues, and Get professional mental health support if you need it, because you want to make sure that you put your own oxygen mask on first. Then, when you start looking at other people, remember, it's all made up. So during my computer science degree at university, which was a long time ago, I remember one of my lecturers, Dr. Robin Owens, talking about the early days of artificial intelligence. And she was talking about the problems that robots had when they were trying to navigate around the world. And the problem specifically that I remember her talking about was a robot trying to interpret their environment. So this robot would have a, would have a camera and it would take photos and would kind of see, if, see its environment around it. But it would see a tree in front of it and uh, because it's taking a two-dimensional photograph of that, it would sometimes mistake it for a road going off into the distance. Because if you think about it, in a two-dimensional photograph, a tree with a wide trunk at the bottom, and it gets narrow as it goes up, looks very similar to a road going off into the distance because it's wide, close to us, and then gets narrow as it goes further. So I remember Robin telling us these stories of robots who are trying to climb trees when they thought they were going on a road. Now, of course, we humans don't make the same mistake because we might still see the same picture in our mind, but we interpret it in context based on our experience. But just remember that it's all made up. We never experience reality. What we experience is what our thinking makes up about reality. And what happens is we distort reality by applying our own filters to it. So think of it like applying a set of Instagram filters to an image. So what happens is we get this input from our five senses and then we have a filter that decides what we keep and what we discard. Then we have another filter that looks for familiar patterns from the past and matches it, so it tries to make a match. And then we have another filter that figures out how it fits with our beliefs and values. And all of that happens in an instant and then we choose how to respond. So we're not responding to reality, we're responding to what we make up about reality. And these filters happen in the mind, but, but we hear them in language. 
Uh, we hear them in language that we use or language that other people use. For example, there's an overgeneralization filter that uh, when you make one mistake, you say, I'm a failure. Um, there's a personalization filter that uh, when you hear something critical, you take that criticism personally. There's a filter called the fairness fallacy, where you judge things that happen as fair or unfair. And they're not. That's just a subjective assessment. But because of our filters, we say that's fair or that's unfair. There's a filter which is sometimes called heaven's reward, which is a belief that a struggle and suffering and hard work are necessary so that we get our reward and maybe are sufficient for getting a reward. Now, people in crisis don't recognize and sometimes don't want to recognize these filters. So just be careful. If you hear people saying things which are obviously filters, just be careful about trite comments like this too shall pass or someday we'll look back on this and laugh or this is part of God's plan. That's not very useful. However, as they start moving out of crisis and start resetting and looking at the world differently, they do become more open to recognizing these filters. So if it's appropriate, you can gently point them out and help them and help them understand that what they're seeing is made up and is not reality. The next thing that you can do is really important for you as a leader is to reset expectations. So some months ago during the pandemic, I was talking with a client who was preparing for her team's performance reviews. Now for some organizations, this is the, you know, the dreaded annual performance review. That wasn't the case for my client and her organization. They, they had a really healthy approach to performance reviews. So they, they had a feedback culture. The performance review was supposed to have no surprises. It wasn't just a ticking the box exercise and so on, but still, this was their first time conducting performance reviews during a major crisis. And she asked me this very reasonable question. She said, should we consider external factors like COVID, lockdown and working from home when we're assessing somebody's performance? Now, of course, the answer is yes. External circumstances should always play a role in assessing performance because you're measuring results against a goal. And sometimes the goalposts move. And you know it works both ways. If your industry went through an unexpected boom and everybody was exceeding expectations, you would hold people to higher standards. And, and generally, people wouldn't be surprised if you expected them to exceed the standards and exceed their goals. Of course, the same applies in reverse during a crisis. And if you can't make allowances for a dip in performance during a once-in-a-century pandemic, well, when can you? And my client agreed, by the way, and that was her opinion as well. But we both knew about organizations that didn't think that way and they were still judging people inappropriately on the goals, the targets and the outcomes that were set before the pandemic. And that doesn't make sense. It's inappropriate because if you sat down with them and set those goals and targets and outcomes and agreed on them in one set of circumstances and now the, the external environment has changed so dramatically, it doesn't make sense to hold them to those same standards. Now, that doesn't mean that you wipe the slate clean and give everybody a free pass. You still assess their performance, but make allowances for the change environment. Now, in, in other words, what you do is you engage each of your team members to work with you to now review, assess and reset your expectations of them and, by the way, their expectations of you. So be open and transparent and encourage them to be open and transparent in return. And don't wait until the formal performance review. In a fast-changing world, this is the sort of conversation that you should be having regularly. The last thing around this area of reset is to keep them safe. 
So earlier I was talking about how people fear the unknown in a crisis and retreat to safety as a coping mechanism. And now as they're coming out of the out of retreat and they're ready to take their first tentative steps forward, they still value safety as a high priority. And uh, Abraham Maslow described this in his famous hierarchy of needs. Maslow's hierarchy you might have come across it. And even if you don't understand it in depth, it's useful to recognize that there is a hierarchy and people only operate at a higher level when their lower level needs are met. So there are many people in the world who are struggling to get clean water for their family every day. They're probably not thinking too much about building a carbon neutral world. It doesn't mean that they're not intelligent, doesn't mean that they're not sophisticated, it doesn't mean that they don't care, it's just that they care for something else first. And the same principle applies with your team members. They're also constantly making decisions, some conscious, some subconscious, about what matters most to them. And part of your role is to keep them safe. They want to feel safe and secure before they will be productive and passionate. Now, everybody's different, but you can think about these four levels and consider where people are. So the first one is health. At the most basic level, especially in a pandemic, we care about our physical, mental and emotional health. And if we're not healthy now, it's difficult to consider our future. The next one I'm going to call wealth. So after we secure our health, we can start to think about earning money, which is a tool to keep ourselves safe and to keep others safe. Then we might look at life. So after we know that we and our loved ones are safe and secure, we can turn our attention to the future and start thinking about longer term plans. So think about education, career, lifestyle and leisure. And finally, we might think about legacy. So we turn our mind to the contribution that we're going to make to the planet after we're gone. Now, not everybody's going to follow these four steps in the same way, and they definitely won't all follow them at the same pace. But just be aware that team members are setting their priorities to stay safe and secure, and they will act according to those priorities. So we've looked at retreat and reset. The third stage is recover. So as your team members come out of retreat and decide to reset, you and they can start turning towards recovery. That means they're ready to make changes required for the future. But not all change is equal, and not everybody is equally ready to change. So broadly, people deal with change in four ways. Number one, they avoid the change, hope it'll go away. This is risky. So you sticking your head in the sand is not usually a recipe for success. The second thing you can do is resist the change and try to restore the status quo. That can work, but only in the short term and leaves you vulnerable. The third thing you can do is adapt to the change and try to work around it so it doesn't get in the way. That's okay. And the fourth thing, which is the best of all, is to embrace the change and find a way to take advantage of it. So let's look at each of these four areas. So the first mindset is avoiding change. I remember working with a group of healthcare CEOs a a few years ago, and one CEO asked me, uh, she said, how do you motivate the people who've been there for a long time and just don't want to change? In another group, I was working with a financial services group, and a leader asked a similar question. So the way he put it was, um, our industry has many experienced and effective employees, but younger generations come along and challenge the status quo, and it causes a conflict. So how do we take those experienced workers on the journey with us? So these questions are similar. They're talking about people who are going to avoid change. And this happens even in the best of time. Some people actively avoid change, hoping that what worked before will continue to work in the future. And this is even worse in a crisis. 
because the world is more uncertain, volatile and fragile. So, so even people who are normally open to change might want to cling on to whatever they think is going to keep them safe and feel comfortable. Now you can address this in two ways. One is you can try to fix it through your powers of persuasion and influence and even your authority to, to lay down the law. That sometimes works, but it can make things worse because they, they still feel vulnerable and weak, especially if you're trying to force them to change. So the other way of doing it is instead of looking at what they're avoiding, leverage their strengths. So to bring them along on the journey, find find their value and what they can contribute to the change. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to separate the why from the how and ask for their help with the why. Especially in a crisis, the, the, the why questions about your team and your organization keep you strong. They're the things about your, your mission, your purpose, your vision and your values. Uh, the questions like, uh, why was this organization built? What do we really stand for? What problems do we really solve for our customers? What do we do to get us through the tough times? When have we stood up for what really matters? Now, realize not all of these start with the word why, but you know what I mean. These are the things that are, that are big picture questions. And the people who best know the answers to these questions might well be the people who are now avoiding change. Because a change is to the how, but they, they might still be happy to be aligned to that same why. So as a leader, make them the guardians of your why. They might not know how to travel the path you choose for your future, and there may be other people who do know that, but they know why you should choose that path. So use them for your compass and let others draw the map. The next mindset are the people who resist change. So some people act in the face of change, but the action is in the wrong direction because what they're doing is they're digging in their heels to protect the status quo. So they resist change. They never take the initiative to create something new. You know who these people are. They're the first to point out why why some change won't work. They, they're always looking for reasons not to change. When you start a change process, they're the ones who white-ant it. Uh, anytime there's a small setback, they're the first people to say, I told you so. And from the outside, it can be frustrating to face this constant barrage of people who are resisting change. But keep in mind that they're not necessarily doing it just to be difficult. Um, we like to think that we're logical, rational people who always make the best decisions based on evidence, but it's not true. We always act in our own self-interests even if we don't want to admit it. Uh, I love what Upton Sinclair, an American author, said. He said it's difficult to get somebody to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. It's a little bit cynical, but he's talking about people acting in their self-interest. And it's especially true in times of uncertainty. It's easy to have a narrow focus and default to short-term thinking. So, for example, it's easy to put immediate productivity ahead of ongoing learning and development. It's easy to fight for a small pay rise now instead of a big bonus later. It's easy to drive your team to exhaustion even if they burn out later. It's easy to protect your fiefdom at the expense of the greater good. It's, it's easy to choose something that's guaranteed safety rather than making a slightly risky decision to innovate. So keep this in mind when you're trying to influence somebody who's resisting change. It might seem illogical to you, but they might be protecting their, their salary, their pay, their reputation, their self-esteem, or something else that could suffer if they actually changed their mind and had to do something. And of course, it also pays to recognize this in yourself. 
So what change are you resisting, avoiding or ignoring because it could threaten you in some way? We've all got blind spots and knowing them will help you make better decisions for the future and will help you better understand the other people who are also resisting change. The third mindset to change, which is quite good, is to adapt to change. Let's talk about evolutionary biology. Unless you're an evolutionary biologist, you you probably aren't an expert in the theory of evolution. So many people know a little bit about it, and you might know vaguely it had something to do with Charles Darwin. You might engage in the occasional debate about whether evolution is true or not. Spoiler alert, it is. And you probably heard the phrase, survival of the fittest. But just consider carefully that phrase, survival of the fittest, because it can take you down the wrong track. Uh, First of all, by the way, it's often attributed to Darwin, but it's actually one of Darwin's contemporaries, Herbert Spencer, who first used that phrase, survival of the fittest. But Darwin, as soon as he heard about it, he really liked it and he endorsed it. Now, just be aware that fittest means something different to us now than it did in Darwin and Spencer's day. So we think of fittest uh, in terms of a physical sense, being strong or athletic, but that's not what Darwin and Spencer meant. In their day, fit meant something fitting well in the environment. So, So think of a jigsaw puzzle where you're always looking for the piece that fits best in each place. It's not the strongest piece, it's a piece that fits best. And that's what Darwin and Spencer meant. When they were talking about survival of the fittest, they were talking about something that fits best in the environment. In fact, the other thing you might have heard from Darwin is a longer quotation, and it goes like this. It's not the strongest of the species that survives, not the most intelligent that survives. It's the one that's the most adaptable to change. And that's what he meant by survival of the fittest. And we're not just quibbling about the meaning of a word in a scientific theory. This is a profound difference about the way that the world works. See, in the past, the other definition of fit also worked. Because in the past, things like size and strength and longevity and power did determine success. But that's no longer the case. This is exactly why large established businesses and industries are disrupted by smaller, newer and more nimble competitors. Those disrupted businesses, they didn't get smaller or weaker, but they no longer are the best fit for their environment. So what does this mean for your team? Well, there are people in your team who don't mind change and they're willing to adapt to it. So give them opportunities to lead because they will help you lead the change. You can actually go quite far with this. So one important role as for you as a leader is to remove obstacles to your team's progress. But you don't have to do it all yourself. And with these team members in particular, the ones who are like adapting to change, don't hide the challenges and the obstacles from them. Enlist them, include them in the problem-solving process. They will often find solutions you would never have discovered yourself. So here's the last one. This last mindset, which is ideal, is a mindset of embracing change. Let me tell you about my stepdaughter, Abby. She's 21, and I sometimes go out to breakfast or lunch with her. And as soon as the food arrives, what do you think she does? She takes a photo with her phone, as many young people do. I think it's a law. And then she shares it with her friends on social media. I should also say, to her credit, she then puts her phone away for the rest of the meal and we have a great conversation. But I know that I have a future sitting across the table from me, so I'm always curious about her behaviour, so I ask her what she's doing. So I remember one occasion, I knew that she and her friends used Snapchat to share what was happening in their day, so I asked whether she was posting her photo on Snapchat. And she said, no, no, Instagram has a new stories feature, so we don't use Snapchat anymore, we've all switched to Instagram. I thought, isn't that interesting? 
When was the last time that I made that kind of radical change? Now, Abby and her friends and many others in the Gen Z demographic, they don't fear change. They, they, they just use whatever works best. They don't complain about the constant changes to platforms, apps and technology in general. In fact, they crave change rather than resisting it. And I think that's so different from the way that many people think in business and in life in general. What about you? How do you face change? Do you love it? Do you loathe it? Do you embrace it as an opportunity or resist it as a threat? Do you sigh and call on your reserves of resilience or do you get excited and go, bring it on? So you might have people in your team who embrace change. It's not only the younger people, by the way. When the world was more stable, perhaps you didn't value their input. In fact, you might have found it frustrating because they were bored or easily distracted or they didn't want to follow the path that, you'd, that you were taking them on. But in a volatile, uncertain environment, these people are worth their weight in gold. There are people in your team who embrace change, so take advantage of them and help them help you. So we've talked about these three areas when you're talking about empathy as a leader, retreat, reset and recover. Keep in mind that people are at different levels as they're going through a crisis. First, they want to retreat. They protect themselves and they think only about what matters most to them and they keep out anything else. Then they reach a reset point where they feel safe to start looking outwards and you can kind of take them along that journey. Finally, at the recover stage, they're ready to change. But, but even then, people manage change differently and they have a different mindset around it. This is where the rubber really hits the road for you as a leader, as a people leader. Emotional intelligence and empathy in particular are so important for you now to take your people into the future. Let me finish with a quotation by uh, Ian McLaren from the 19th century. And he said, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And that to me is the key to empathy and emotional intelligence as you take people from crisis to recovery and then through growth. I hope you enjoyed that and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, please share the love by reviewing and rating it in the place that you get your podcasts. That really does help to promote it to other people as well. And if you want to engage with me to go deeper with these ideas, let's talk. Especially now as we're all trying to navigate and lead our way through this time of great uncertainty, it's more important than ever before to be able to offer clarity and confidence so that we can really be fit for the future. I offer conference keynote presentations both online and in person, workshops and masterclasses, mentoring and coaching. And you can find out more at gihanperera.com. And while you're there, you can also find my blog, my newsletter, more episodes from this podcast and some public online presentations. And these are all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team and, of course, yourself as well. Stay safe and healthy and I'll see you in the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.